Thank you, Haley. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, good, good. Uh, K-State fans, how you doing? How you doing? I, I, that was not a jab, okay, that was not a jab. Uh, I have no allegiance to our hometown teams, so I'm just a fan of all of them. Uh, so it's been kind of rough the last couple of weeks. I, I promise, I wasn't making fun of K-State, guys. That wasn't what that was. I know it seemed like it, but it wasn't. I promise. I promise. Well, you got to pick someone, right? At least a, a, a nine seed is now making its way through. So that's exciting. Sorry for the sports talk. For those of you who don't care whatsoever, uh, I promise I have more content than this. Uh, well, as mentioned previously, we are working our way through Lent. Um, if you've been practicing along with us, your stomach might be a little bit lighter. Uh, you might have a few more aches. Um, and there's something really beautiful about this season as we work our way towards Easter, um, actually aching for it. Our bodies and our souls aching to receive resurrection. So we find ourselves in Lent. And we've been working our way through this series entitled In the Wilderness. It's a reminder that we as the church in the West are incredibly familiar with the God of the mountaintop. We're less familiar with the God of the wilderness. So we want to take our time in working through Lent and learning what it is to locate God in the midst of our pain, in the midst of suffering and difficulty. So each week we've gone through a different practice. We've covered prayer, we've covered uh, fasting, we've covered, uh, what else, simplicity, silence, solitude, and today we come to the practice of Scripture. Now if you're like me, many of us have had this moment where we're sitting across the table with someone having coffee, and you're describing a painful or difficult moment in life, and they respond to you with a quote from Paul, count it all suffering, count it all joy to go through suffering. A selection from the Bible that is designed to bring us hope feels a little bit more like salt in the wound, doesn't it? You've gone through something tragic or difficult and someone is trying to be encouraging, but it just strikes a chord and it does not feel encouraging at all. It feels like just brushing over your pain. In the past, instead of receiving these moments with gratitude, I think I received these moments with a bitterness. And I start to have a resentment towards the biblical text, all because of a misplaced verse. All because someone out of a desire to encourage me instead pours a little bit of salt in the wound. Before we can get to how Scripture helps us recognize our God's presence in the wilderness, we have to acknowledge and address the elephant in the room. That many of us do not trust or even like the Bible. Hear me out. I will not be advocating for a phrase like the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. That's a phrase from a previous generation that leaves out the small task of interpretation so maybe a more genuine saying should be, the Bible says it, I interpret it, and that settles it. <laughs> but what I am saying is that this library we call the Bible is incredibly important to the one we call Lord. 
And thus we should pay attention to it. But for many of us, this is an intimidating task. It's difficult to understand and we just don't simply know what to do with the book in our lap. And frankly, it feels easier to just ignore it than to put into work the work to understand it. So in an effort to inspire some confidence in us as a community, as Jesus followers, I want to answer three questions. Why should we trust the Bible? What is the Bible and how should we engage with the Bible? So just buckle up. This will be a little bit more lecture than sermon, but in part it's because we all have a lot of questions. We look at this strange text and we're like, what do I do with this? What are the Nephilim? Like, what are these giants being spoken of? How does Paul and Peter's experience, like, how do these things work together? I wish I could answer all those questions because I clearly have all the answers. (laughs) We can't answer all the questions related to our engagement with the text, but we can set kind of a foundation that going forward, we might be known as people of the text. So starting with that first question, why should we trust the Bible? I want to start with the why because for many of us, our church education taught us to trust in Jesus because he's the star of the Bible. Trust in Jesus because the Bible talks pretty highly of him, but in fact the opposite is the case. The foundation for trust in the Bible is built on the life, death, resurrection, and teachings of Jesus. We trust the scriptures because we trust in Jesus, not the other way around. Andrew Wilson puts it this way. Our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him and I have decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. We trust the Bible because Jesus trusted the Bible. Let's look again at the passage just read by Haley. Jesus, in the early portion of the Sermon on the Mount, makes this statement. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. These would be the two parts of the Old Testament that he's referencing to. He says, I have not come to abolish, to tear down, destroy, annul, to put to an end, but I have come to fulfill, to proclaim fully, to accomplish, to bring to completion. We trust the scriptures because the God-man Jesus, the one who conquers death and leads us into eternal life, trusted the Bible. Listen, the foundation of our Christian faith is not a book, it's an event. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus constitutes the foundation of our faith. If Jesus is still dead, then the prophet Isaiah, book of Jeremiah, Luke, and John's testimony don't mean a thing. If Jesus is still in the grave, this book is a waste of paper. But if death has been conquered and the kingdom of God inaugurated, then I better take the Bible seriously because Jesus took the Bible very seriously. 
He was a teacher of the Bible, and I would argue any serious attempt to be an apprentice of Jesus demands that we take the Bible seriously and that it take a central role in our lives and in our community life. Now, there are entire books dedicated to this very subject of why do we trust the scriptures. So I have not even gone nearly far enough, but I just want to summarize what is the basis for coming to this book over and over again. It's because we believe there's an empty grave somewhere. We trust that our Jesus has conquered death and is inviting us into the kingdom of God. And for that reason, we look to the book that shaped his imagination. We look to the book that he constantly taught from. Jesus was not all that original. His imagination and his teachings are found in the pages of the book that is on our lap and on our phone. So this leads us to our second question. What is the Bible? So let's take again a look at that passage. Do not think I have come to abolish the law, the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus doesn't do away with the scriptures. He is the definitive interpretation of them. A fourth century church leader, Christendom, wrote, Christ's sayings were no repeal of the former, but a drawing out and a filling up. When we look at the scriptures, the Old Testament, Jesus is the pinnacle, the direction it is going. He takes a look, Jesus takes a look at this library of writings. What we call the Old Testament made up of narratives, poetry, census writing, prophetic oracles, and song lyrics. And he interprets it as a cohesive story, all finding its point and center and fulfillment in him. So I want to answer the question, what is the Bible with this definition? You ready? The Bible is a library of ancient writings of divine and human origin that together tell a unified story that leads us to Jesus. We're going to take tackle that statement piece by piece. So a writing, a library of ancient writings. What comprises what we hold in our lap or in our phone is not a single volume composed by one really efficient writer. Like one person did not put all of this together. It is a collection of writings with over 60 authors spanning thousands of years composed in several genres. In fact, the Bible actually began as an actual library. Like if you were to go into a first century church, they would have the scroll of Isaiah. They would have the scroll of Matthew. They would have a room dedicated to holding the library of the sacred text. And I was recently reading this book by a scholar, Larry uh, Hurtado, and he argues that it was actually the Christians who had all of these scrolls that fought and pushed for the technology of a book. They simply were like, we have all these scrolls to carry. There's got to be an easier way to do it. And so they pushed forward. And the way we have books bound with pages together was really, in many ways, the early church forcing their way and trying to figure out how do we keep these sacred texts together. It was this beautiful reality in which they were people of the book. And while it's incredibly convenient that we have it all in one book or one place, it is important that we remember that it is a library. If you and I were to go to the Westport Library right after this gathering, you would not approach the magazines in the same way you approach the comics, I hope. (laughs) You would not read a novel in the same way you would read a memoir. You would not interpret a book of poetry the same way you interpret a cookbook. 
Each genre works to convey truth in a different way. Truth it is communicating, but it takes time to interpret and read each of these differently. It's important that we remember that the Bible is a collection, a library of ancient writings that should be approached with respect for its intended purpose and with an understanding of its cultural settings. I've mentioned this several times before, but I think one of the greatest hindrances in American Christianity is our presumed familiarity with the text. We grew up around it, and so we assume we know what it says, and maybe more dangerously, we assume we know what it means. We were in microchurch this past week, and we read from Luke 6, where Jesus says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. And I grew up in this environment um, where there was a high emphasis on giving to the church and material blessings follow. And so this text in particular, as soon as we read it, my mind went right back to those places I was. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, always applied to the things that God was going to bring to me. But read verse 37, one text, one scripture, one sentence before it. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. These verses have little to do with material blessings and everything to do with what we sow into our relationships. And listen, I have two degrees in Bible. Like I have spent, I think, about seven or eight years in formal education reading the text, and the moment that scripture came up, I went right back to where I was 12, sitting in an auditorium, thinking if I consistently give my 10%, man, the Ferrari is going to be great. (laughs) It takes time for us to unlearn these habits. There's a way in which it beautifully embeds itself on our heart, but sometimes we realize what's been embedded is not that great. Listen, our kiddos are downstairs and they're learning the scriptures, and I pray, and I know our children's team takes it really seriously what they're doing, but there might come a day in which they have to unlearn something that just caught in their little head. We will have many moments in our life where we come again to the scripture and we realize the way I was reading it previously is not the way it was intended. We all, especially those of us who grew up around the Bible, must foster a renewed sense of humility. Humility around our biblical understanding and strive to reassess our assumptions of what it means. So what is the Bible? It is an ancient library of divine and human origins. Divine and human origins. In Mark 12, Jesus is teaching in a synagogue, and he's asked uh, about the nature of the Messiah. And he responds quoting Psalm 110. I'm not interested in Psalm 110. I'm actually interested in how he intros his quote. He says this, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, And then he goes on to quote Psalm 110. Note that Jesus doesn't say David in his own experience. He doesn't say David in his own ingenuity. He doesn't say David in his narrow view of God and his implicit bias. 
But nor does he say that David just woke up from a trance with a scroll filled out in his own handwriting and go, oh, what happened? Jesus seems to suggest that there is both a human and a divine collaboration going into the work in front of us. Human authors with their personality, their intelligence, their experiences, their cultural bias and scientific worldview, writing incredible works of literature, all touched by the Spirit of God. The Bible's origin is a divine and human collaboration, a perspective some have called the incarnational model of Scripture. Just as Jesus is human and divine, so are the Scriptures, and the Bible does not shy away from either origin. The Bible never tries to hide its human side. There's been a long movement over the last hundred years of trying to deny the human side of the Bible. But I think it's in 1 Corinthians, early in the book, Paul says something like he's reminiscing on those who have been baptized. And he's like, I can't remember who I baptized. (laughs) Human forgetfulness has made its way into the biblical text. At no point in time does the Bible shy away simply from the fact that it was written by human beings. The text work through the worldview, historical, cultural, and scientific understandings of their authors. But it also never downplays its divine origins and the mystery of that reality. In 2 Peter, the apostle writes, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Or Paul, in 1 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God. That text has a long history of bad interpretation, but I think maybe a helpful way to think of this would be in an analogy. Uh, My father-in-law, Cassie's dad, was a um, career musician for about 30-ish years. 38 years. I was off. Um, And he was a French hornist for the Cincinnati Symphony until he retired about six years ago. If we were to go to a symphony and watch him play the French horn, one, it would be incredible. But two, if I were to ask you, who's making the music, the instrument or the musician? That'd be the worst question ever because your answer would be yes. There's a practiced intelligence guiding the instrument to do what the instrument was to do. It is both together producing music that is beautiful to engage with. And similarly, our scriptures are the beautiful collaboration of human authors inspired by their encounters with our God. The Bible is a library of ancient writings that is both divine and human and tell a unified story that leads to Jesus. Now, the ancient library we call Bible, as I've mentioned, has a multitude of genres. And I'd love to get into all the genres, but we're not going to. But in broad strokes, I'm going to generalize all of those genres into three categories. First, narrative, which is roughly 44% of the book in front of you. Um, This includes the Exodus, Joshua, the histories, much of the Gospels. It's a good portion of the book. Second is poetry, which is roughly 33%. This is the Psalms, the prophets, multiple examples of prophet, or, uh, poetry making its way into our text. And then third is discourse, which is 
teaching or um, explanation literature. And this makes up roughly 23%. This includes the epistles, portions of the gospels, long discourses in which Jesus is teaching. Now, many approach the Bible thinking of it mostly as discourse. A divine textbook where we go to the table of contents and we go, okay, marriage, I find a couple of verses on that and I flip to it and I grab a few nuggets of wisdom. Or we go to money and we flip to the Proverbs and we get a few things or we go, oh, what does God say on this, that, or the other? We use it like a divine manual for trying to live life. And that's forcing the Bible into a role it never claims and it was never meant to be. Because the Bible is 77% narrative and poetry. 77%, give or take, is story and music lyrics. The book begins as a library within the beginning God, and the last line is, I am coming soon. It starts and ends as a story. Simply, the Bible's composition suggests that it should be read another way. New Testament scholars like N.T. Wright will summarize this book in its multitude of genres, in its collection of work, as a unified story that comes together in five parts. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, and new creation. It's a single storyline being told through a multitude of genres, through a multitude of people, each component comprising a vital detail of the grand narrative being written by our God. And it is a treasure that doesn't give up its secrets on the first reading. If you have read through the Bible multiple times, how many times have you come to a passage and because you had recently read something in Genesis, your mind is just blown by the author's reference? You, as you go through it, the Bible has this way of opening up a little bit more and demonstrating how even though it is written by over 60 different authors over thousands of years in different cultures, God has had a way of weaving the narrative together. The book in front of us is this beautiful mystery that we are invited to discover. It is a story that continues to tell itself over and over and over again. And like any good story, this book offers us an invitation to ask the biggest questions of human existence. Have you ever noticed that a story can wedge itself in your mind far more than any lecture? That a story invites us to ask the big questions of ourselves, like, who are we? What does it mean to be human? What is the meaning and purpose of life? Where are we? What has gone wrong and how do we fix it? The Bible is a library of ancient writings that is both divine and human that tell a unified story that leads to Jesus. The questions that the Bible invites us to ask find their fulfillment in Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is given the opportunity to speak at his hometown synagogue. And he opens up the scroll of Isaiah. He's very familiar with Isaiah. And he finds this particular passage and he reads from it. And then he rolls up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and all eyes just fixed on him. 
Corbin did this bit a couple weeks ago where he just sat in silence. I imagine Jesus doing something similar. It's like this mic drop moment. He's just, all the attention is on him. And he says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus takes an 8th century prophetic oracle written to a people who have just experienced the violent overthrow of their entire government. They're being taken into exile. They are being removed from their land. And it is a prophetic word written to them. And Jesus interprets it as a story pointing to him. In the Gospel of John, Jesus responds to questions about his authority. And he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to me. The law and the prophets, the old and the new, find their fulfillment in him. For the Bible is one unified story that finds its center and its climax in Jesus. Now this does not mean that we do the thing where we look for Jesus on every single page. It's bad hermeneutics. Um, maybe someday I can explain all of that. We don't look for Jesus in every single psalm. Like, every psalm isn't saying something about Jesus, but every single passage is looking forward to Jesus. Not every text is a reference to Jesus, but every text offers us a breadcrumb looking towards our Jewish Messiah. We can have confidence that wherever we pick up in the text, that this text finds its ultimate interpretation in Jesus. For the library of Scripture is a story that cultivates in Jesus. So this brings us to our last question. How should we engage with the Bible? Two simple answers, in study and in formation. So studying the Bible. Some of you are like, Alex is giving us homework. Yes, Yes, I am. There will be homework. Cassie will be grading and collecting it. (laughs) This is a collection of, as I've mentioned, 60-plus individual works written over the course of thousands of years in multiple dead languages from cultures we have never experienced. So that should inspire a sense of humility in all of us. There should be a sense of humility when we pick up that dusty book that sits on our coffee table. There should be a sense of humility that comes with that. But here's the good news, that we live in the most well-equipped generation to study this book. With a phone and a Wi-Fi connection, you have access to more raw information on the Bible than Augustine, Martin Luther, John Wesley, and C.S. Lewis combined. Your phone and a Wi-Fi connection are more powerful than almost any library that has ever been in existence you are well-equipped to study the Bible. Let me say that again. You are well-equipped to study the Bible. That does not mean every time you Google, you will find good information. Uh, I, will, I will help us identify what good information is soon. But you are equipped with it. There are more free resources on studying the Bible than ever before. There's no excuse for choosing to opt out on this. We should be a community that loves to study the scriptures. So here are some suggested resources. Uh, The Bible Project. Full stop. The Bible Project is by far the best resource on reading the scriptures. 
They have a YouTube channel. So for those of us who are like, I don't read, watch a video. Listen to some lectures. They have a great podcast on like the weird, bizarre elements of the scripture. They are one of the best resources on the Bible we have today. And one of their founders, Tim Mackey, is one of the best Bible teachers alive, full stop. The Bible Project is a great way to begin engaging with the scriptures. And before I go too much further, I want to just mention this. You don't need to do it all at the same time. Just say, we're going through the Gospel of Luke as, as microchurches. Just commit yourself to, to learning more about the Gospel of Luke. And then next year, we're going to go through a different gospel. Commit yourself to figuring out more about that gospel. You can slow play this, and the Bible Project is a great way to do that. Another resource, another resource is Biblia.com or the app Logos. Both of these offer the ability to read the text in several different variations. And it's always a good practice just to, to take a look at what different translators say. Again, multiple dead languages and... Um, I have a lot of confidence in many of the English translations we have available to us. I, you know, I've heard some conspiracy theories like, oh, so-and-so had a major agenda, and so that whole version is bad. I, I don't put too much stock in that, but if you read across multiple variations, you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> like, just engage with it. Uh, you can pick up commentaries, which are scholarly explanations of particular sections of scripture. This is still how we do 75% of our uh, sermon preparation. We open up a commentary and we read what scholars and those who are thinking and spending their full time doing, studying the scripture are saying. Um, any of our pastoral team would be happy, happy to offer um, some suggestions on where to start. Corbin would die. Like if you ask Corbin what commentary you should pick up, be prepared for like a 30-minute lecture <laughs> on all the commentaries, all their benefits, and all their drawbacks. So we would love to offer some guidance in that way. It's what we love doing. My final suggestion would be to maybe just pick up a study Bible. Um, study Bibles are Bibles with a short commentary built in at the lower portion of the page. And they just offer a quick reference. So as you're going through maybe your daily devotion, as you're reading, it just offers a quick little interpretation at the bottom of the page. This isn't great for like heavy-duty study if you really want to get into a subject. A study Bible is probably not the way to go. Rather, a commentary would be. But this is a great way to just incorporate learning into your everyday devotion. This is a great way to just quickly reference, okay, I don't, I don't really understand what's being said here. I can go to the bottom of the page. Uh, the gold standard for study Bibles is still the ESV. It has some more reformed leanings, um, so it's not my favorite, but it is still a beautiful explanation of the text. Um, my favorite is the NIV cultural background study, which uh, Jeremiah is not here, but Jeremiah will walk around. It is this fat book uh, written by Keener and Walton. It is incredible. Um, so that's the one I would recommend. Both of these cost about $30. So it's, it's really not that much of an investment. And it's a really convenient way for you to grow in your understanding of the scriptures. So I want to say this, when we begin studying, we need to cultivate a sense of curiosity, that we learn more about the history, culture, and environment from which our scripture emerges from. And it will be hard and clunky at first. Like, having all of the information in front of you, it, it is also difficult to wade through. 
Um, it is a clunky process, but as you grow in your knowledge, as you grow in your engagement with it, you will also grow in your confidence. You'll be able to quickly understand what is going on in the text. So there is so much more I would like to get into. Like, we didn't even touch basic hermeneutics, which is the practice of interpretation or exegesis, how we explain the Bible. I'd love to cover how to read different genres or how uh, so many modern interpretations have encouraged the modern deconstruction movement. I'd love to cover whether the Word of God is a reference to the Bible or someone else. Um, and if you stay around Midtown for long enough, we will likely get into all those subjects. And as important as those things are, as important as your study is of the scriptures, I think there's something a little bit more important than technique. The thing that's a little bit more important than technique, or maybe infinitely more important than technique, is posture. The way by which we approach the text. Worship team, if you would join me. This brings us back to the original question, and what does the scripture do when we're in the midst of a wilderness? How can we let this library that's in front of us help us discover God in the midst of our pain and difficulty? I think it begins by allowing ourselves to be formed by the Bible. In Matthew 4, just before our Sermon on the Mount text, Jesus is in the wilderness. I've taught on this within the last, like, four weeks, so hopefully you remember this moment. Jesus is in the wilderness, and for 40 days and 40 nights, he's gone without food. And as the story goes, the devil comes to him with three temptations. The first being a temptation to turn a rock into bread. 40 days, 40 nights, that would be a pretty appealing temptation. Then the second temptation goes as the devil invites Jesus to throw himself off of a high building and just to see if God will catch him. And then there is a temptation to rule the world just simply if he will bow to Satan himself. And to each of these temptations, Jesus has a scripture. Like our friends sitting across the table from us. Jesus is like a fortune cookie pulling just these little moments from scripture. And somehow he seems to come through this moment more strong, more prepared, more ready for everything God has for him. To each of these temptations, Jesus has a scripture. These are not magical incantations that solve the problems and resolve the tension. They're not mantras that distract him from the temptation. Rather, each scripture is a highlight from the story of God, reminding him of the story that he is a part of. Jesus' imagination and thought patterns are so thoroughly saturated with the scriptures that he puts his suffering in the context of a larger story. This is how Eugene Peterson puts it. When we submit our lives to what we read in scripture, we find that we are not being led to see God in our story, but that our stories are in God's. God is the larger context and plot in which we find ourselves. There is no technique 
There is no strategy. There is no reading plan. There is just a posture. A posture that in humble submission works to see our lives in the unfolding story of God. It is an invitation to read these texts not as a disconnected moment in history, but as our family story. To see these texts as the story that God is inviting us to. Now don't get me wrong, when someone says count it all joy, they could have chosen better. When you've lost a loved one, when disaster strikes, when evil is perpetrated, when suffering comes crashing into our lives, a selection like God works all things together tastes incredibly bitter. Don't get me wrong. There is a much better way to approach it. They could have used a selection like some of David's psalms where he laments the pain that he's experiencing or the lamentations of Solomon, or the cries of Jesus himself, texts that remind us that our God does not brush over our pain, but rather he bears it with us. There are many better texts that someone could have chosen. But even so, may we be a community that so thoroughly enjoys the scripture that we've been given, that we may appreciate the words of scripture even when they may taste bitter that we may be a people of the book. A posture of reverence and humility, a posture of curiosity and honor, a posture that exchanges our bitterness for gratitude. That even when someone chooses poorly, know that their intentions are in the right place. Know that our scripture is still valuable and trustworthy a story that points us and directs us to our King Jesus. So here's my invitation this week. It's to consider your posture towards the scripture. For some, your next step might just be a new commitment to reading the scriptures every single day. Like January comes around and by January 12th, you've forgotten what part in the Bible you're in. This might just be a simply a renewed commitment to engaging with it every single day. For others, it might be a new curiosity in studying this library. As a pastoral team, we would love to walk alongside you as you learn to study the scriptures and find it for the treasure that it is. But my guess that there are some of us that just need to be honest about our relationship with the good book. Some of us may just need to have a conversation with a friend and be honest about maybe the ways in which a different community, or maybe this community. I pray it's not this community. But the way in which this book has been used as a weapon more than a balm. Some of us carried the wounds of someone using the text in the wrong way. And we may just need to be honest about, I haven't touched my Bible for a while. There's a lot of dust on it simply because it hurts when I open it. Let's just be honest about the posture we have. And may we learn how to enter into a posture of formation that says we want to see our story in the grander story of God. Easter is this incredible moment in which the resurrection of Jesus reminds us too that there is a day in which we too stand death conquered, all the world made new. 
may our engagement with the Bible be a reminder of that posture. Let's pray. Father, it is a gift that you have given us in the shape of a book written over the course of thousands of years, both of your intention and our brothers and sisters from way back, a divine and human collaboration creating the library we call Bible. Lord, I pray over the course of this week that we would be reminded of the beauty of the story that we would be reminded of the treasure that it is and that our hearts would bow in reverence and honor that we may be shaped and formed into the image of Christ. It's in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.